Welcome to Talking Beats. I hope you'll subscribe and give us a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash talkingbeats. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash talkingbeats. We believe now more than ever in providing a platform for individuality, free thought, and a diverse range of views. By supporting the show this way, you'll get early access to episodes, bonus episodes, and much more. And remember, the conversation is always active at Talking Beats Podcast on social media. On today's program, we're speaking with Mike Espy. He was the first African-American congressman from Mississippi since Reconstruction. He also has held a number of positions in that state, including Assistant Secretary of State and Assistant Attorney General. In the federal government, he also served as Secretary of Agriculture under President Bill Clinton. The politician who's known for his personal warmth and his professional ability to reach across the aisle, reach across what he calls the racial chasm, is now running for the United States Senate from the state of Mississippi, and I couldn't be happier to welcome him here. Mike Espy, welcome. Daniel, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate you, and I'm glad that we are able to connect in this way. Your passion, your joy... They're they're irresistible. Uh, it's is it the people? Is it is it the work? Is it your aspirations that that give you this? I, I guess the word is charisma. Where does that come from? Well, I'll ask my wife how much charisma I have, <laughs> but I do have the passion. I have a passion for service. You know, I uh, back in 1986, I ran for a seat in the U.S. Congress. I began at age 29. I'd never run for anything in my life, and I won. I beat um, I beat some stiff competition in the Democratic primary. Senator Eastland's grandson and Governor Paul B. Johnson's nephew, we beat them in the primary, and then uh, took on the incumbent Republican congressman who had um, who had beaten back a challenge from the leading African American politician twice, and I beat them. I beat him in 1986. So you know when I got there, I I wrote a bill. Uh, that Ronald Reagan signed in the law. So I'm just saying throughout my career, I've been able to uh, to render service. And, and Daniel, I believe in the in the in the saying, those who want to run, some of them want to be something, and some of them want to do something. So I'm in that latter category. I want to do something. And I did something when I was assistant secretary of state, first African American in that role in Mississippi. I then became assistant attorney general, first African-American in that role in Mississippi. And then I became a member of Congress. And I've said that first black since the Reconstruction era. Just pause there because people, I think, gloss over that. It's not something to be glossed over. The, the first black congressman from Mississippi since Reconstruction. I mean, I mean, yes. it's you, you list it in a litany of wonderful accomplishments, but that is truly extraordinary when you think about it. And, um, and even more so, well, thank you for that, uh, but even more so because in 1986, the district that I won was not majority black. Now, you know, it, it, it was not majority black when you consider black voting age population, normally called BBAP. So it was probably 42% or 43% BBAP, but I had to do the same things then that I had to do now. I had to go across the aisle, across that racial chasm, 
and go to uh, white voters in Mississippi back then, and most of them were farmers, uh, and convince them because the farm economy was in a downturn, and many of those farmers had, were going bankrupt in 1986. I told them, if you elect me, I'm going to be available, accessible, I'm going to be knowledgeable of your issues and your problems, and just put your faith and trust in me, and I'll respond, and I did. They elected me. I got 99% of the black vote back then and about 8% of the white vote. That was enough to win a congressional seat first since the Civil War era. And uh, I think I served them well because each next succeeding uh, race, uh, I just kept getting more and more white vote in that district. And then when I left there in 1992, we were getting almost 40% of the white vote in that district, which was still not majority black. You know, you bring up two things that, that, that are sort of obvious when it relates to you. One is the issue of, of, of what you call a chasm, of reaching out to white voters, being, being a non-white citizen of Mississippi. The other is, is the agricultural part of it that I think is so crucial to the makeup of Mississippi. Yep. Uh, and obviously, not many people know uh, as much about agriculture as a former secretary of agriculture. But talk about both reaching out across what you call a chasm. Did it feel like a chasm? talking to, to white voters, even in your county, and then also to bring in the, the farming and the agriculture part of it. It's just a, a wealth of knowledge that, that you bring to the table. Well, it was a chasm. You know, that chasm was narrowing uh, for me because I served everyone irrespective of race or age or gender or income or sexual orientation, even back in 1986. So, but, but it was a chasm. I remember one time Bill Bradley who was senator from New Jersey, you know, played, played, uh, you know, basketball. You may know him. Great player. Uh, yes. He came to Mississippi and uh, he and I were traveling in my campaign bus. We were doing various events. And uh, this particular day, we went into a cotton gin. So for those of you who may not know what a cotton gin is, it's a, it's a, it's a meal that separates, you know, the, uh, the seeds from the lit, you know. And we were in there, and it was crowded, and most of the workers were white. And Bill followed me into that uh, mill, and uh, I extended my hand to some of the workers, and they they recalled. They wouldn't shake my hand. And when we got in the bus, uh, Bill uh, turned to me and he said, did that disturb you? Uh, they wouldn't shake your hand, these white workers. They wouldn't shake your hand, and you're running for Congress. And I said, you know what? Um, they didn't. And it didn't upset me. It did disturb me. But I'm going to be their congressman as well. I'm going to be their congressman as well. And so, you know, I went on to become Secretary of Agriculture over, uh, over cotton, you know. So, uh, <laughs> you know, all things have a happy ending. But, yeah, it was a chasm. But uh, I, I just believe, Daniel, you, if you're elected, uh, uh, they imbue you with trust and faith. And uh, you represent them as well as you can. We did that in four terms in the uh, in the Congress, and then went on to become cabinet secretary. And it's my goal now to become the next United States senator for the same reason. Mississippi's last. It's last in almost every socioeconomic indicator, whether it's health, education, income, job opportunity. We're either number fifty or somewhere near the last. Uh, you know, of those states. So it's my job to do my best to lift this state up from the 
from the basement, uh, lift it. And I really think, Daniel, the best way to do it is to uh, focus like a laser beam on the bottom third. The last in income, the last in health outcomes, the last in jobs. Do everything you can do to uh, inspire them, to bring resources to them, to bring whatever the federal government can do to create the environment so they can be self-sustaining, whether that's home loans or whatever it is, minimum wage, $15, whatever it is, that's what I'm going to do. And when you lift up the bottom third, you don't have to talk about race so much because Mississippi is a is a poor state when you focus on the poorest people a great many 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 of them will be white so once we lift up black and white alike we're going to touch everyone you don't have to think about race so much and that chasm begins to narrow talk about the the efforts you've been making with the Reverend William Barber, the Poor People's Campaign. This is something you reference often, yes. and it has to do with what you were just speaking of, the the economic uh, malaise as opposed to yes. racial. Well, yeah, Reverend Barber's a good friend of mine. Uh, he's a, He runs a nonprofit called the Poor People's Campaign, so he can't officially endorse. Of course, that's a violation. Uh, but uh, he is a friend, and I've been on so many Zoom calls with Reverend Barber. And uh, he... Um, he made an observation, I think, that was profound about Mississippi being red and a Democrat in Mississippi not being able to win. And he said to the Zoom audience, which is something I'll repeat to you now, he said, Mississippi is not so much red as it is unorganized. So that just struck me because it's so true. Uh, there's a legacy of disinvestment in Mississippi. And so if, uh, if, if those who really want to see Mississippi move forward, particularly those who might be um, inclined to give to Democrats, like those in the DNC or the DSCC, if they had given serious money, if they had invested serious money in Mississippi decades ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, 15 years ago, we would probably already have an African-American senator, more members of Congress. Uh, we would compete for statewide office because we'd already have the infrastructure. We'd already have the track of which our train is running, the runway on which my plane is now taking off, and the bridge that I'm building, that I'm having to build pretty much alone as a candidate. Uh, so we would have had a deeper bench of qualified candidates. Uh, they would already have been trained, and we'd have the data and the analytics to give to them so that they could could do the work that they had to do, but that's okay. Uh, now uh, people are beginning to turn to this campaign with a lot more notice. Uh, we're using the money to build that infrastructure. It's going to help me, but it's also going to help those who come behind me. So I can thank William Barber for that uh, for that quote. Can we talk music for a minute? Because uh, this show is called Talking Beats, and no matter who you are, ambassador, senator, chef, scientist, I always ask about music because I really feel now more than ever, yes. it's, it's about the only thing that, that we can, I, I quote, fall back on. It's, it's so solid. It's always there for us. A lot of music in Mississippi, everybody from B.B. King to Leontine Price. Uh, yep. What is music for you, Secretary Espy? Mississippi is the blues capital uh, of the world. You know, now some other deeply southern states might begrudge me me saying that, uh, but, uh, you know, B.B. King is no longer living, but was a friend of mine. 
you know, Muddy Waters, a friend of mine, we had a we had a uh, we had a COVID compliant rally in Mississippi recently, and uh, the it was it was during the summer, and we invited Blue Stars to uh, to come up, and people were in their cars with their air condition on, and they were <laughs> able to turn to the FM channel and hear these Blue Stars. But I'm gonna let you know, I see that Beethoven uh, <laughs> uh, folder flyer in your on your tape your desk there now. I used to be a musician myself. Uh, I'm not now. I'm too old and and um, and unlearned, I guess, and don't have the discipline to get back to it. But until I was age 12, I was a concert violinist. I was uh, from almost age five. Did you play any Beethoven? Yeah, <laughs> some Beethoven, some so. Beethoven. <laughs> you know, I remember uh, when I was a young kid, I was doing a solo concert in a high school auditorium and I was so nervous I was first chair in the orchestra but mm. then this was my own you know recital and uh it was full of people and my parents were there and I remember being so nervous that when I was doing the staccato you know yeah my hands were so sweaty the bow flew out of my hands <laughs> into the audience <laughs> and That's one it. of the what my father got up uh god bless him and uh calmly retrieved my bow and I brought it up on stage and, and uh, hooked me and, and I finished. And then I was a, a drummer in the band. The, uh, I, I played uh, snare drums and tenor in, in the band. Uh, so I had a uh, had an orchestra, uh, you know, musician occupation as well as a marching band. So uh, I, I never, uh, I, I'll tell you why I stopped. Because uh, I was proficient in music until 12, because I had good teachers. I had a music teacher named Sister Fetus. Sister Fetus started me out on piano, but I was no good. She said, you know what, Mike, we're going to find another instrument for you, because you're no good here. So I just took up violin, and I took up the drum. And I was in that school until I was a junior. But that school closed for lack of money. So, and this is um, Daniel, probably 1968. So that school closed and uh, my parents had to make a decision for my twin sister and I, and that was to send us either to the all white school called Yazoo High School or the all black school called Indy Taylor. Now I didn't have a vote. I wanted to go to an all black school. It was more convenient. I'd be more comfortable there. I'd be with my peers, so forth. But my parents realized that that school had hand-me-down books from the white school. That school had no laboratory for aspiring doctors. And that school didn't have the accelerated academic program for those who would go to college. So they sent us to the white school. It was the worst time of my life. I was called the N-word every day. There were 17 black students among a student body of 800. So every day I'm the N-word. Every day I either have to fight or flee from a fight. Uh, teachers sprayed me with high-pressure fire extinguishers in school. But I tried to join the orchestra, and they told me that I couldn't read music. And I'm going like, what the heck? I'm the, I'm the first-string violinist at, at a parochial school and they and I said, just test me, and they didn't. 
And so I couldn't join the band. I couldn't join the orchestra. I couldn't write for the newspaper. So, I mean, that was a formative experience that really just made me want to leave Mississippi and never come back. Uh, And I went to college in Washington. I went to law school in California, and I never intended to come back, but I did. I'm glad I did because now I'm running for the U.S. Senate. So all I can say about music is that I love music. I love just about every uh, form of music, all genres, pretty much. But I love uh, I love R and B. I love uh, like Sade, mostly her her rhythm, Sade and uh, some Sting, you know, and Seal. I love that 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 slow, you know, undulating type of sound. I love you know meditation type music. Uh, but I try to join them, and I was cut off in my ambition. Well, I welcome you on stage with me anytime if you ever want to take up the fiddle again. I know you're pretty good. I couldn't compete. I couldn't compete. <laughs> uh, when, so- I, when I announced for the U.S. Senate, uh, we, had a, we had a musical prodigy to introduce me. He introduced me, and then he played, uh, he played uh, uh, the uh, God Bless America and then the what's called the Negro National Anthem. You see the, the the little kid, the little violin player. That's I've seen. I, I saw him online. I've seen. He's great. He's That's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. He's a my guest me guy. So yes, absolutely. That's terrific. I I know we're we're a little short on time, and and the yeah. elephant hanging over everything is 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 the virus, is the pandemic. It's it's no secret that Mississippi was hit hard and hit early. And as uh, Dr. Osterholm, who's been on here, has described it as, as, instead of waves, a series of brush fires in the big forest fire, that's the virus. Yep. Uh, because there's not a wave that's actually gone away, so it's hard to use that term. So Mississippi has been subject to uh, larger brush fires yep. uh, throughout this whole process. You've been on the front line saying, saying no. What would you have done differently? What's your plan going forward to save Mississippi and save lives? I would have told the truth to the people. I would have done my best to prepare them for the oncoming pandemic. I would have done 180 degrees different from what President Trump has done. He, you know, he denied it. He said uh, it was going to mysteriously disappear, said that it was a Democratic hoax, that it'd be over by Easter. Cindy Hatt Smith, the uh, woman I'm running against for this seat, said uh said when trump said it was disappeared she said oh this could be gone in two weeks and that was back in the end of february so the first thing i would do different is i would tell the truth i would recognize my limitations i'm a lawyer i'm not a doctor so i would i would bring into my orbit the best infectious disease doctors uh that ever exists in mississippi we've got some pretty good ones here and i just asked their advice and that I would follow their advice, you know, socially distance, wear your mask, you know, comply with all the CDC guidelines. That's what we're doing in our campaign. But I would just tell the truth. And uh, I remember in fifth grade, also back in that Catholic school, we had the Cuban Missile Crisis. And uh, when the bell rang, you had to get under your desk. And I'm going, why do you have to do that? And they said, well, uh, you know, Khrushchev might launch some missiles from Cuba and crush out school in Yazoo City, you know? I'm going, what the heck? And uh, <laughs> But the thing is, they were trying to prepare us for uh, what could be oncoming danger. And uh, our president failed to do that utterly because he knew back in January that this was coming, that it was airborne, it was serious, it was a killer, and yet he just dismissed it. So I'd do everything different than 
they've done. I tell the truth. I surround myself with medical scientists. I would do everything they said to do, and I would I would lead. When you're going to be in the Senate, you're going to be confronted with a lot of problems that don't have anything to do with with national issues, but international. Is the United States right now the beacon of freedom, the beacon of hope, of possibility that it can and should be? Yes, you know, United States is uh, is an exceptional country. Uh, you know, uh, number one country uh, on God's earth. I, I, I believe that. But we don't have to be so insular, you know? We don't have to retrench uh, and withdraw from all these global institutions like the Paris Climate Accords, you know, like the World Trade Organization, like the World Health Organization. You know, you know, we live in this world, and, and, uh, and we ought to lead the world. This is we... Well, we, we should continue to lead the world just as we're doing now. And uh, so, I mean, I would join all of these multilateral institutions. When I was Secretary of Agriculture, I was fortunate that uh, when I was there, I asked President Clinton to give me the trade portfolio for agriculture. And he did. You know, we have a trade czar, but he, he, he extracted that portfolio and gave it to me. And when all over the world negotiating tariff rate quotas and phytosanitary guidelines for everything America uh, grew uh, all over the world for GATT and NAFTA, and I loved it. So, so the only way we can grow our footprint more efficiently is to depend on our allies, not, not to spurn our allies, but to embrace our allies and lead them. So I am... Um, uh, I have an exterior view. You know, I believe in America, America's preeminence. I believe in that, but we're not alone in the world. And uh, I think that we should have more alliances uh, in NATO, more alliances in the European Union, not withdraw uh, and do better to make this world, you know, just just a, a more livable place, particularly when you consider it the environmental degradation. Secretary Mike Espy, soon to be senator running for Senate from the U.S. state of Mississippi, you would bring a lot of elegance and comedy to the Congress, I believe. Uh, and I thank you so much for your sincerity and your heart. Well, thank you. Thank you. You've called me elegant. And, uh, you know, you said a lot of great things about me. So, man, I appreciate you. So, uh, so glad to uh, be a guest of yours. And uh, I appreciate you. And thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to Talking Beats with Daniel Alchuk. I hope you'll subscribe and leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. The original theme music for this program is by Ronald Markham. The content coordinator is Nathaniel Mosse. Doug Christian is the executive producer. I'm Daniel Lalchuk. See you next time.